They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, which we've entitled Simply Jesus, meaning that we want to get to the identity of Jesus. We want to see him as he is, because we know that there are many interpretations of who Jesus is, and there are many spins that we can put on his message. So we want to be sure to hear in his own words who he is and, and read his own actions as presented by himself to understand who he really is. And what's interesting is that so far, and, and I'm sure you've noticed that, and I've drawn your attention to it several times, Jesus is very careful uh, to let certain people know who he is, and then he forbids many people to tell others about him. He doesn't actually want people to go tell others about his miracles. He's very specific that as he performs a miracle, he doesn't just send people out and say, now go tell everybody that I can do miracles. No, no, he actually holds them back and says, don't tell anybody about me. So this is what the commentators call the messianic secret. Jesus is deliberately keeping his identity secret throughout the gospel of Mark. And it's certainly until we get to chapter, 
late chapter 8. And then when Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah, Jesus starts defining his Messiahship in terms of his cross and his resurrection. So now Jesus defines who he is in terms of his crucifixion and resurrection. And it's only on those terms that the disciples can understand him and can tell others about him. So even in our text, I mean, you see here that he's careful to talk to the disciples and to explain to them because they are the ones that are supposed to understand. There's too much misunderstanding outside of that circle. And so Jesus is careful to do that. And when you get into these middle chapters, which is where we are now, chapters 8, 9, and 10, what you see is there, there's three times, there's sort of this three cycles, three patterns repeating. And, and they're all the same. Jesus uh, declares that he is the Messiah that is to be crucified and, and rise again. So he declares that, that identity. He reveals the messianic secret in a sense of saying, this is what this messiahship is. It's about the cross and the resurrection. Then the disciples immediately don't understand that, and they start talking about how great they are. So that's the typical reaction. Jesus says, I'm going to go die for you. And the disciples say, but who's the greatest among us? That's the reaction, right? It's a reaction of self-centeredness and pride and, and arrogance and self-interest. And then that's always followed by Jesus talking about what true discipleship is. So you see that pattern repeating three times um, in chapter 8 and then 9 and, and, and 10 next week. So we're in that second one of those, those, those patterns, of the three patterns, where Jesus proclaims himself to be the crucified and risen Messiah. The disciples respond without understanding by exalting themselves. And Jesus teaches them about the cost and the sacrifice and the self-denying nature of discipleship. So the connection here is, here's the gospel. It's, a, it's misunderstood, and now it has to be explained and applied. So that's the pattern. And that's what I want to do today. I want to explore that pattern because we're in the second of these three instances. So I want to explore this pattern and just two headings this morning. And by the way, the notes are available in the back if you need them, but really simple, just two, two headings today. First, how the gospel shapes us. And second, how the gospel saves us, how the gospel shapes us. And secondly, how the gospel saves us. And I will spend almost all of my time on the first point. Okay. And then we'll, we'll wrap up with the second. Okay. So look with me at verse 31. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's, again, he's defining his identity. And he says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So here's the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, which are the basic facts of the gospel. So when somebody asks you, what is the gospel? Well, the facts are that Jesus came to die and rise. That's the facts. How it relates to you is very important, right? How do you respond to that? What it does in your heart is important. But the actual facts of the gospel is his death and resurrection. The good news is that Jesus came to die and rise for us. That's the good news. Our Lord, if we are Christians, our Lord is a crucified and risen Lord. This is who he is. Now, I'm saying something that is obvious, isn't it? I mean, it should be, and any Christian would agree with this. Any, whatever denomination, wherever country, if you tell them, 
is your Lord a crucified and risen Lord? They would say, of course, yes, that we're, that we're Christians. So all Christians affirm that. But do all Christians live in the way that reflects the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus? Because what Jesus is doing here is predicting his suffering and death and resurrection. And he wants that to shape the disciples. Now, they don't get it, and he has to explain more. But the point is for the gospel to shape our lives. Uh, we need to not just say we, we believe in the Lord who, who died and rose again, but we follow the Lord in this way, that our lives are shaped by this reality of Jesus dying and rising for us. This is not just a point of doctrine. It's not just about who he is. This is kind of the whole thing. It has to define everything in our lives. So, so let me give you this illustration. Imagine you walk by a restaurant, and, and the sign says it's an Italian restaurant. Even the name sounds Italian. The colors are right. And you walk in, and you are met with the aromas of lemongrass and ginger. And you say, it, it says the restaurant is Italian, but this doesn't smell like Italian food because I'm not smelling garlic, I'm not smelling olive oil, I'm not smelling basil and oregano, I'm not smelling any of the flavors that I would expect to smell based on, on the sign outside. So it says one thing, but in reality, the cuisine is, is different. It's not, it's not the same. It's not what you expect. And then you pick up a menu and you say, there, there's, there's no pasta on it. What kind of, what, what kind of restaurant, Italian restaurant is it? There's no, there's no pasta on it. And so when you look at these, the, the, the three-time three, three repeated pattern of Jesus, predicting the cross, the disciples responding in pride, and then Jesus having to correct them and apply the cross to them, what, what we find is that the gospel must shape our lives to the extent that our lives actually exude the flavors of the gospel. So that if we take his name and call ourselves Christians, if we say we are a Christian church, our lives must exude the flavors of the cross and the resurrection. So when somebody sees the, the name, right, when they see the sign, or when they come into our sanctuary and right above it says that we are disciples of Jesus, what they should expect are the flavors of discipleship. They should expect to, to smell discipleship here. They should expect to sense and to experience something that is is reminding them of the cross and the resurrection, something that connects them to the gospel of Jesus and who Jesus really is. And not just individually. This isn't just for each person to exude that. I mean, yes, that's important. But it's how it happens corporately, collectively, in, in a body of believers in the church. So when somebody walks in, what, what should they expect to smell and taste? And does it match the public identification of ourselves as disciples of Christ. So I'll give you these two flavors, okay, uh, from our text here. The first flavor of true discipleship, if it's shaped by the gospel, is service. It's service. Now listen to how Jesus responds to the disciples' argument about who among them is the greatest. Now he just told them 
I'm dying. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give my life for you. And, and they're arguing who among them is, is the greatest. So Jesus says this is contradictory to what I'm saying. It's contradictory to the gospel. So let me explain it to you. And he goes to explain it in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he takes a child and embraces this child. This is, this is an affectionate kind of welcoming of a person. He hugs the child and says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Meaning that if you receive a child, if you receive someone like this child, if you serve people who cannot give you anything or very little in return, that's a sign that you are in a relationship with me and through me in a relationship with my Father. So Jesus says, for you to exude discipleship, for you to live and be shaped by the gospel means you serving people who are not expected to give you anything back in return. Now think about it. Children need constant care, right? They barely can do anything. They can do anything for themselves, right? You got you to gotta wait on them all the time. You got to provide everything for them. They don't, they don't know how to do anything. You have to explain everything to them. And they cannot help you get ahead in life, right? If you think that having children is going to, you know, help your career, that, that's not how it typically works, right? They, they can't help you find new opportunities in life where you're going to make more money and your reputation is going to increase. Um, if you go to a job fair and you're looking for a job and you see a couple of kids playing in the corner, don't go and play with them. You know, they're not going to help you get a job. They have no connections, right? They don't know anybody powerful. And if they do, they, their word means nothing to that person. So what Jesus is saying is, by, by taking this child, he's saying, this is the nature of your relationships. You should serve others. You should become their servant, a servant of all, be the last of all, without expectation that they would do something for you. I mean, this, and by the way, in that culture and in our culture, and probably in any culture, this sounds crazy, right? Jesus is saying, focus your life on serving people who can't give anything back to you. This is what he's saying. Because this is what the gospel does. The gospel actually shapes you that way because you see Jesus came to serve those who could do nothing for him, right? When Jesus died, did, did we even ask him to die? No. Did we want him to die? No. Can we pay him back in any way for what he has sacrificed for us? No. The cross is an expression of grace. Jesus dying for his enemies, loving his enemies, forgiving sinners, reconciling with rebels. And what is the result of his work on the cross? What happens because Jesus died? We are adopted into God's family and we are called God's children. So God can take care of us, right? And explain things to us and help us and provide for us and protect us because we can't give him anything. 
That's the gospel. And Jesus says, if the gospel shapes you, if you get it, the gospel shapes you, you will look for people who can't repay you. You will look for people of no influence. You will look for people that can't make your life better, and you will serve them. That's how we're supposed to live. If we follow Jesus and let the gospel shape us, we, we will do that. One of the people who have, has had an influence on me is, is Henry Nouwen. Um, and after a long and successful academic career, Nouwen became a pastor at Daybreak in Toronto, which is a community of people with mental illness and disability. So the idea is to, to have people with mental illness and disability living together and, and really built community and having other people with typical abilities to be there and live, actually live with them. And there are many of them around the world. This one was in Toronto and, and now and moved in there and became their pastor. And this is how he describes his experience in, in his book, In the Name of Jesus. He says, the first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the many useful things I had done until then. Since nobody could read my books, they could not impress anyone. And since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not provide a significant introduction. My considerable ecumenical experience proved even less valuable. When I offered some meat to one of the assistants during dinner, one of the handicapped men said to me, don't give him meat, he doesn't eat meat, he's a Presbyterian. Uh, in my experience, Presbyterians can put away meat, but... <laughs> he put himself in a situation where everything he's accomplished meant nothing. And he served people who, who can give him nothing but themselves. Now, another example of, of humble service that's found in our, in our passage here is verse 41. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Again, this is, this is, there's a disproportionate thing happening here. Jesus says, if you do something simple for me or in my name, right, there's a reward for you that is disproportionate to what you do. Even something as simple as a cup of water given for his sake means something in his kingdom because his kingdom is shaped by the gospel. It does not go unnoticed. Jesus recognizes humility. Jesus notices service because these belong in his kingdom. Jesus can smell the aromas of the gospel in your life. He can tell. Now, many other people won't be able to tell. But he can tell a simple act done in his name, and he notices that. Now, notice something else here. The smallest act of service, given presumably without much thought, just a cup of water, elicits a reward from God. And then receiving the least, like children, means receiving God. There's a paradox here. Serving those who cannot do anything for you turns out to be the most beneficial thing for you. That's another amazing thing about it. As the gospel shapes you, you do, thing at, you do things at your expense 
realizing that there's a great reward that comes to you through it. Now, parents know that. Parenting could be very demanding and hard, but it can also be very rewarding and fulfilling. Raising children can make you a better person. In fact, for most of us, you know, that's, that's sort of our salvation, you know, that we had children at some point, and our selfishness was confronted, and, you know, of course, marriage does that as well. Friendship does that. But you don't do that to be better. You don't have children thinking, well, I'm going to have a couple of kids, and then I'm really going to improve who I am. You can't do that. You can say, I'm going to have a couple of children, and I'm going to serve them, and I'm going to love them, I'm going to sacrifice myself for them. And then you discover that that very life of service actually brings God's grace into your life and changes you. So Henry Nouwen writes about his life at daybreak. This experience was, and in many ways is, still the most important experience of my new life. Because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self. The self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. Now, I believe all of us, if honest, would say that's what we want. We want to discover our unadorned self, be completely vulnerable to be able to give and receive love. I think all of us want that, and all of us are are scared of that. So we need to be forced into it. We need to be put in situations where we serve others and they are helping us. And when when Nouwen reflected on his life at at daybreak, for many years he served there, uh, he talked about how those friendships with the men there, the men that he spent time with that had had no regard for his education, (laughs) had no regard for the many languages he knew and, and his degrees in psychology and theology, meant nothing to them. And he said, those relationships became the most meaningful to me. He says, I benefited from that. They became my friends who ministered to me. But you see, but you can't go into it like that. You can only go into it by saying, I'm going to serve them. And as I serve them, you discover what God is doing in your life. Now, let me give you just a word of encouragement. Many of you may feel that what you are doing is insignificant. Maybe you're serving somebody for Jesus' sake and there's no recognition. Um, Even if it's maybe something simple as giving somebody a cup of water or giving somebody a ride or, 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 or buying somebody a coat, something very simple. Or maybe it's raising children. Some of you parents who are in the midst of those early stages, right, of toddlers where it just care doesn't end, you know, it's, it's just ongoing and it's exhausting and it's, it's difficult. Or maybe you're just hanging out with people that are hard to hang out with or maybe that no one else wants to hang out with. And you're there for them and you wonder, is it, is it worth it? 
Am I doing something meaningful or, or valuable? Now let me encourage you by saying that the Lord himself sees that and he recognizes that as worthy of reward. This is very important that Jesus says that this this gospel-shaped life that often goes unnoticed by others is not unnoticed by him. That he knows exactly, he knows exactly every cup of water that you've given to somebody. He knows exactly all the hours that you spent being up caring for a sick child. He knows all of that. And he treasures that because to him it smells like the kingdom. You see, it, it tastes like the gospel to him, and it's his gospel. And he rejoices in that. And he loves you as you do that. So I want you to take it to heart. If, you know, if you're struggling, if you feel like my life is just, is just hard, and I don't know if any of that is worth it, of course it is. If you're doing it for his sake, in his name, it absolutely is worth it. Now, the second flavor of, of this kingdom, of the gospel, uh, of true discipleship is sacrifice. So one is service, the other one is sacrifice. Look at verses 38 and 40, through 40. John comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, John is one of the main disciples. Uh, he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we try to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to sacrifice control. John is not upset because someone was casting out demons in Jesus' name. He's upset that this person is not affiliated with the disciples. He's not upset that Jesus has not sanctioned that casting out of a demon. He's upset that the disciples haven't sanctioned it. Do you you see the difference? Because John says... He's not upset that, that this person was not following Jesus, but the text says because he was not following us, John says. And how, how dare he do something in Jesus' name without the official disciples' knowledge? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, don't worry about exerting control over him. Let him do what he does in my name. He's not against you. If he's doing something in my name, it's okay. You don't have to be involved. You don't have to put your stamp of approval. You don't have to organize it and make sure the hierarchy is maintained here. Control must be given over to Jesus. When the gospel shapes your life, you stop worrying about controlling things around you and making sure things are done in the way you want it to be done. Now look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be, or to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is a harsh warning. And the context of it is Jesus' command to serve all and receive little children. Now, this is the opposite of that. It's taken advantage of those who are vulnerable. It's taken advantage of the least of people. Instead of elevating them into the position of those that we are to serve, 
for Jesus' sake. The warning is against using them, taking advantage of them. And by doing it in the Christian community, the powerful Christians can easily destroy the faith of the least powerful, those who trust them, those who naturally look up to them. Church leaders who sexually abuse women and children and then justify their heinous sin with religious reasons is a prominent example. When, when churches and organizations and leaders say, we can't deal with that, we can't punish the ones who are responsible because that will affect our reputation, because it will affect the work of the kingdom. What they're doing is they're destroying the faith of others. They're, they're taking the least and they're using them. Now, another example is prosperity preachers who are accumulating wealth by taking money from the poor. One of the, the biggest prosperity gospel churches, one of the most wealthy pastors live in places and communities and in countries where there is tremendous poverty. Now, how can that happen? They are using the poor. They're taking the last of their money for themselves by tricking them, by making promises that they can't keep. Now, what's happening there? They're taking the least people who are naturally going to look and believe them, and they're abusing them. They're taking advantage of them. Now, what does Jesus think about it? Jesus says that it would be better for them, for those who take advantage of the least of these. It would be better for them if a great millstone were hung around their necks and they were thrown into the sea. Amen. That fate is better than what Jesus is going to do to them. This is important how you see that Jesus himself, as he assesses something, you can see how the gospel shapes that. You can see his concern for the least. You can see his sacrifice. You can see his serving the least and not giving in to the power structures of the world and saying, oh, that's just how things are. He doesn't do that because he himself is a crucified and risen Jesus. So not only are we called to sacrifice control over others and resist to use others for ourselves, we are to sacrifice our very selves. And that's when you get to another tough, tough passage, verses 43 through 50. Now, I'll read it to you, and I think the end of it is very unusual, and I'll, I'll, try, I'll do my best to, to explain it, but I've struggled with it this week. But I want you to see if the flow makes sense to you. Okay, if I, I'll just read 43 through 50. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I think verses 43 through 48 are very clear. We are to give up whatever causes us to sin, no matter how much a part of ourselves it feels. Now, Jesus is, is not promoting self-mutilation. This is um, hyperbole. He's using stark language to make us think about how, how hard we are actually willing to fight against sin. And, and he's saying basically that we need to be ruthless when we deal with sin. That in temptation, we are to be ruthless by resisting it. But what about verses 49 through 50? What does salt have to do with resisting temptation? And by the way, if you read the commentaries, almost all of them that I've read this week, they begin that section by saying, this is a difficult saying, and many people... <laughs> are struggling to understand what it means. I mean, it's basically saying we don't really know what's going on here. And then they're saying, here's the three views. None of them really fit perfectly, but maybe the second one is better than the other. I mean, this is how the commentaries read. And, and so I've really wrestled with that. I mean, what do I tell you on a Sunday morning? You know, I'm supposed to tell you what it means. Commentators don't know. And so I try to, I try to step back a little bit and say, okay, so what's, what's the obvious thing here? What's the obvious connection? Is there a connection to another passage of Scripture? And the commentators point out that it is likely that Jesus is drawing this metaphor of salt, and you have fire here as well, from the Old Testament, from this idea that sacrifices, when they were brought to God, they were supposed to be salted. And specifically in Leviticus 2.13, which says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now, there's many interpretations of why that is, but God clearly commanded His people when they bring a sacrifice to put salt on it, to season it with salt. Now, if this is the background of what Jesus is saying here, I think He's using the imagery of temple sacrifices and the salt offered alongside with to, to make a point, and I think this is what the point is, I think. The point is that we are to live as sacrifices to God. That the gospel shapes us to such a degree that we actually go and place ourselves before God as if we are placing ourselves on the altar. And we're saying all of it our eyes, our feet, our hands are included in that, which the, makes the previous passage make sense as connected to it. That our whole, our whole being is affected by the gospel. And all of us, all of me, now belongs to God. And so the act of salting me, the act of putting salt on myself, is the act of offering myself as a sacrifice to God. It's me saying, I don't belong to myself anymore, but I belong to you. So you can take, Lord, every part of me and any part of me you want, because all of me is on the altar. So when Jesus says, if your hand 
causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. When he says that, we're dealing with the sacrifice that's already on the altar. The sacrifice that was going to be cut up by the priests and distributed according to God's commands. We're dealing with something that is holy God, and now God has, he can do whatever he wants with it. It's his. And so if he wants to take something away from me, because I can't handle that, because it's too big of a temptation for me, whether it's money or health or a relationship or any sort of security, he can do that. He can do that because I am a sacrifice to him. All of me, my whole life. And when you put all of yourself on the altar and you make that sacrifice, and that's how the gospel is shaping you. Now you're living as a sacrifice. That means any little sacrifice, any daily sacrifice makes perfect sense. And you don't question it. Well, my, my, whole, my whole person is a sacrifice. All of me. And when Jesus says, when your salt loses its saltiness, I think what he means is that we can forget that we are a sacrifice to him. That we can start thinking of ourselves as belonging to me. We can start saying, well, maybe most of it belongs to God, but the hand is certainly mine. And when you start thinking that way, you lose your saltiness because you're not salting all of yourself anymore as a sacrifice. You're only salting certain parts. And you're presenting only certain parts as an offering to God. And so we need to be reminded for the salt to regain its flavor. It's it's for us to say, no, 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 all of this belongs to God. All of me. All of me completely. Everything I have, everything I think, everything I plan, everything I feel, all of this is on the table. You, Jesus, determine my identity. You, Jesus, determine my life. You, Jesus, determine what I need and what I don't need, what's good for me and what's not good for me. Everything is on the table. And then to have salt in ourselves means to be at peace with each other. So imagine if all of us are living as sacrifices to God, what happens to our relationships? Well, we don't try to manipulate each other. We don't try to use each other. We don't try to exalt ourselves over others. This is a very different community when there's a collective understanding that all of us are sacrifices on the altar to God. And I think it's noticeable. I think that's one of the flavors that comes through. And I think other people notice it. I think people are attracted to that. And I think the world notices that because it is so weird. It doesn't make any sense unless the gospel shapes you, unless something else has shaped you, unless your your Savior really is the crucified and risen Savior. So do you see yourself as a salted, seasoned sacrifice? Well-seasoned, all parts of you. Is it not what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12? After expositing the gospel, same pattern. Here's the gospel, now it needs to shape your life. In Romans 12, 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the gospel of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, live like that. Because of what Jesus has done for you, now you live sacrificially. 
So those are the two flavors. Flavor of service and flavor of sacrifice. Sacrifice to each other. Sacrifice in control, manipulation, and, and uh, authority and power. <coughs> and sacrifice of ourselves to God. And now, very briefly, how the gospel saves us. Now, I'm not talking about eternal salvation here. I want to be careful. The gospel does save you eternally. Yes, it gives you eternal life. It saves you from hell. It lets you into the kingdom forever. All of that is true. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about the gospel doing something right now, saving us from something right now that prevents us from living in the way Jesus wants us to live. All this talk about sacrifice and service is great. But how do we actually do it? How do we do it? How can I serve others when I am naturally concerned with self-exaltation and self-justification? Now, I'm, I'm talking about myself, but I'm sure all of you agree. I'm sure that all of us naturally, by default, are concerned with exalting ourselves over others and justifying ourselves and never admitting our mistakes and always presenting ourselves in the best light, that's my natural sinful tendency. Now, if that's my natural, and Jesus says, now serve children, how can I do that? How can I do that? How can I do that sincerely? How can I do it well? How can I sacrifice myself when the instinct of self-preservation is so strong in my heart? How can I give myself over to others when all I want to do is keep myself for myself? When my, my sinful heart is saying, don't be vulnerable. Don't open yourself up to anything. Don't share anything. Don't serve anybody. And Jesus says, sacrifice yourself completely to God and others. Do you see the problem? That self-exaltation and self-preservation become barriers to me living out the life of a disciple. So how can we be saved from those things? And the, re the, the answer is we must go back to the gospel again. It's still the gospel that saves you. The gospel that shapes your life and tells you how to live by serving and, and, and sacrificing yourself is the same gospel that's going to save you from self-justification and self-exaltation and self-preservation. So look at verse 31 again. Jesus teaching his disciples, and he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That's the gospel. And then notice what, what happens with the disciples. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus was telling them about the cross and the resurrection, but they did not understand it. And because they did not grasp the gospel, they could not live lives of service and sacrifice. Because they didn't get it, they went to arguing among themselves who is the greatest. That's exactly how it works. You may have heard the gospel. And, and if you've been coming here, I'm sure you have heard the gospel many times. But that doesn't mean you understand the gospel. It doesn't mean that you get it. It doesn't mean that it clicks. It doesn't mean that it's dropped into your heart. 
It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is actually working it into your life and destroying barriers and making you a different kind of person shaped by that gospel. You see, they heard it, but they didn't understand it. And they were afraid to ask. And really, it's not until after the resurrection that Jesus spends time with them and explains to them, and really not until the Holy Spirit comes. It's really not until the the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and takes that gospel and actually implants it in their hearts and they're changed from within. It's really not until then that the church begins to live shaped by the gospel. Like we we don't see the power, right? And the transformed lives and transformed communities and people sharing their possessions. We don't have that until after the day of Pentecost. Because only then the gospel is actually understood. They got it. Now, they have to get it again and again, just like us. But it's the Holy Spirit that that works it in. And so to the degree that you understand or get a handle on it or remember or work through it in your heart what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb, you will be able to that degree, you will be able to live lives of service and sacrifice. And I'm, I'm going to point you in the right direction, but this is the stuff you have to work out on your own. You have to work through it with the Holy Spirit. But I'll give you these two pointers. The gospel saves you from self-exaltation and self-justification. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus contrasts he, this high title of the, the Son of Man, which is from Daniel. It's this title of the Ancient of Days, the one to whom all kingdoms belong. And he's saying this, this exalted figure is going to be delivered into the hands of men, just regular guys. The guys who can put two beams together and nail somebody to them. He's saying, this is what's going to happen to me from the highest to the lowest. Jesus says that I will refuse on the cross. Jesus refused to exert his power over others. He could have easily avoided it, and he didn't. On the cross, Jesus offered himself to be killed. He knew he was going to be killed. And on the cross, he accomplished what we are all scared of total vulnerability, total and complete vulnerability, even even signified in his being naked physically on the cross. He faced what we all fear on the cross, judgment of others, and most importantly, judgment of God. And why did he do that? He sacrificed himself for us, to serve us. The cross kills our need for operating out of fear and insecurity. Because we don't need to use our power to establish our worth. Our worth has been established on the cross. You are worth the Son of God dying for you on the cross. That's your worth. You don't need to establish your worth by dominating others by manipulating others, by presenting yourself better than you are. You don't need to do that. Now, we want to do that because we don't understand the gospel. To the degree that we understand that, we will know that the cross kills that need. It kills that necessity. 
The gospel saves you, number two, from self-preservation. Because Jesus rose on the third day, we too will rise with him. That means we cannot lose anything of value forever. Everything will be restored to us in the resurrection. Praise the Lord. We don't need to worry about self-preservation because our lives are hidden in God with Christ who died and rose for us. That means that we are safe. That means that there's no sacrifice that the Lord asks of you that will actually take something from you forever. Every sacrifice is a gain for us because we will rise again with him in glory. Now, I'll stop here because I only want to give you these two directions, how, how the gospel uh, kills that need for self-exaltation and self-justification and how the gospel saves you from self-preservation. But you have to work it out and you have to let the Spirit work it out in your life. Because to the degree that you understand and apply this gospel and your life is shaped by it and you're saved from these barriers, you'll be able to follow Jesus the way he calls us to.